us get into this passage a little bit more. And I want to start by just framing this a bit with some context, okay? So go back to verse 1, and in verse 1, what you find out is who wrote this thing. It's a guy named Peter, who's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And he's writing this about three decades after the resurrection. So this is probably like 60-some AD, 64, 65, something like that. And at this point, Peter would have been an old man. He would have been an old man who would have have experienced a whole lot of life at this point. Now you read a little bit further, verses 1 and 2, you find out whom he's writing to. So uh, what does it say there? If you look at verses 1 and 2, it says... That he's writing to God's elect, or you could also say God's chosen people, who are strangers in the world, or living as foreigners, as as some translations say. And it says that they're scattered. Now, they're scattered in these these six different places that it names. Uh, It mentions Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia. Um, These are all places in a part of the world called Asia Minor. Now, anyone know what Asia Minor is today? Turkey. Turkey. Okay, very good. Anyone ever been to Turkey, by the way? Yeah, David, I've gotten to visit there before. So this is, these are all places that would have been in modern-day Turkey. And they're all part of the Roman Empire. So Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. Now, why is it that he, he calls them strangers in this? I mean, that's not something you typically refer to someone as. And, and the reason, as you, as you find out as you read the letter, is actually because of persecution. So around the time that this letter is being written, the Roman Emperor Nero had begun to kill Christians in Rome. What had happened was there had been a, a big fire that destroyed a, a good part of the city. Uh, there were rumors, actually, that Nero was the one who was responsible for the fire, but he blamed it on the Christians. And the way that he, he punished them was he persecuted them, he killed them. He had some of them that he literally turned into living torches. He set them on fire and said, you guys are the light of the world, well then how about you light our streets at night? So that was what was happening during the time this letter was being written. At least that's what was happening in Rome. Uh, was that what was happening to these guys? We, we don't actually know. The letter doesn't actually tell you um, the exact nature of the persecution that they were suffering. But what we do know is that after this letter was written, this letter would have been read by, would have been passed down to people who suffered tremendously. So if you go through the, the, the history of Christianity, what you find out is that within a couple of decades of this letter being written, that there were many Christians who went to their death as martyrs. You know, there are accounts of Christians who were stoned and, and who were beheaded and crucified and skinned alive. One of the, the apostles, actually, Bartholomew, uh, was said to have been skinned alive. That's how he died. Uh, there were those who were burned alive. There were those who were eaten by lions. And, and so for the Christians of Peter's day and for Christians of the later day, you know, why, why do you think he's writing this letter? Why, why do you think he's writing this letter? Hope? Encouragement? Yeah, I mean, I think those are both perfectly valid answers that he's writing to encourage these guys. I mean, think about how encouraging this would have been if you were one of Peter's readers. I mean, if you, if you notice this carefully, some of the places that Peter is writing to are actually places where there would have been people who most likely would have met Peter before. And the reason that I say that is that if you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and you read about what happened on the day of Pentecost, you'll notice that there's actually a list of all of these different places that people had come from to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the day that it just so happened that Peter, by the Holy Spirit, stands up and preaches his very first sermon. 
And uh, what you find in this big long list is that uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, these very places that are mentioned at the beginning of this letter are also present on the day of Pentecost. So, you know, put yourself in the shoes of these readers. You know, you're one of these suffering Christians. You're facing trials. You're not sure that your faith is going to be able to bear it. And you think to yourself, you think back to that day when you became a Christian through the preaching of Peter, and you think, if only I had a faith like his. I mean, Peter had been so bold, he'd been so courageous. You know, if only I had a faith like his. And now, you find out that this very guy, the guy who had been responsible for leading you to Christ, has taken the time and the thought to write a letter to encourage you in persecution. You know what I think this is like? This is like... What happens when, like, Russell Wilson goes into a hospital and he visits children with cancer? I mean, imagine if that's you, and you're like a huge Russell Wilson fan, and then all of a sudden, Russell Wilson walks into your hospital room and wants to, like, hang out with you. Like, if that's how I imagine it would have been like if you were one of the original readers of this letter. So, so it's for encouragement. He wants to encourage them. And that's what this whole letter is about. So what we found out so far is that this is a letter written by Peter. We found out that it's written to a bunch of Christians who are living in the Roman Empire, and they're Christians who are suffering. So what this tells us is this book is a book about suffering. It's not the only thing that it's about. And in fact, next week I'll probably do an overview on the whole thing. Um, And there are more themes in this book than just that theme of suffering, but I want you to see that suffering is one of the major, major themes. And this brings up a question. And the question this book raises is, what on earth does suffering have to do with the good news? What does suffering have to do with the good news? Because like Christianity is meant to be all about the good news. <laughs> I mean, that's what the word gospel means. It, the, the message of Christianity is that the gospel is not... Good advice to be followed. It's good news to be believed. You know, Christianity is not a message that says that you have to live in fear and anxiety about whether or not you're ever going to be enough, like enough for yourself or enough for God. No, it's not just good advice to be followed. It's not just a bunch of rules so that you can feel like you're enough before a holy God. No, it's good news to be believed. Whereas every other religion says, do these things and then God will accept you. Christianity is the only religion, it's the only way of living, it's the only worldview that says it's done. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he meant it. He meant it because when he was on the cross, he did all that was required in paying for our sin and satisfying the requirements of a holy God. He did all that's required so that we could actually know and be in the presence of and experience forever and ever the love of God. So it's not good advice. It's good news. It's not due. It's done. (laughs) And that, it's phenomenal. I mean, that means that there's life in the name of Jesus. It means there's rest in the name of Jesus. It's why Jesus was able to say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, that's good news. And that's that's what this passage starts out with. So, like, look at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 are all about the good news. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Wow. I mean, what have you done to deserve that? 
The answer is nothing. It's just a gift of God's free grace because of what he did in Jesus. And it's saying that like, because Jesus really rose, there is such a thing as true hope. And actually, this is where the name of that song comes from, Living Hope. It comes from, from this passage right here. But, since, but, that, but the, the passage doesn't stop there. It starts out with the good news and then it goes on. And it says this. This is verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So what it does is it takes the good news. And then it juxtaposes it right with suffering. And so what this is saying is that you can be a follower of Jesus. And you can still suffer unspeakably. You can be a follower of Jesus and still suffer unspeakably. Which means that this passage, and in fact this entire book, is about one of the most universal human experiences that that, that there can ever be, which is the experience of suffering. And notice that it's suffering in all of its forms. Verse 6 says that you may have had to suffer grief, not in just, you know, one kind of trial, like, oh, being martyred for your faith. No, it actually is broader than that. It says grief in all kinds of trials. This is talking about any kind of suffering, any kind of trial, whether it's illness, whether it's loss, whether it's death, whether it's anxiety, whether it's loneliness, whether it's rejection, whether it's depression, all of it, all of it is going to be talked about here. And Peter puts these things right alongside the good news. So the question is, what does suffering have to do with the good news? What does suffering have to do with the good news? I'll give you one answer that's been given to that question. And that's the answer of our culture. Here's what our culture says the relationship between those two things is. The relationship says, the, the, the culture says there is no relationship. Suffering has nothing to do with the good news. And here's why. The reason why is that we live in a world that's dominated by secularism. And in a secular worldview, the material world is all that we have, it's all that exists. There's no God, there's no absolute truth. There's no supernatural. It's just matter that bumps up against other matter without rhyme or without reason. And so that means then that the only meaning that there is in life is the meaning that you create for yourself. The meaning that you create for yourself. But think about this. That what kind of meaning is that? There's the problem with the meaning that you yourself create is that that kind of meaning can never ever be durable. Because what happens when suffering comes into your life? I mean, if your meaning has been, if you find your meaning in in being successful, let's say, like being responsible, having a good job, making good money, you know, what happens then when you lose your job, when you lose your money, when you lose like even your ability to work? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was down in California. I stayed with a guy who about 20 years ago was paralyzed in an accident and is now a paraplegic has to go around in a wheelchair. I mean, that could happen to any one of us. I'm not trying to be like a Debbie Downer, but I'm saying, like, that's just the world we live in. Life is not easy. If you put your meaning in something like that, what happens when suffering comes along and takes it away? Or, let me just give you another example. If the, per- if the, if, if the center of your universe is another person, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiancé, you know, what happens if there's a breakup? The answer is that, well, then all of a sudden, like, you break up. Like, your life falls apart because your meaning was never durable in the first place. Um, you know, back in a number of decades ago, there was a guy 
who uh, he was a Jewish doctor who survived the concentration camps in World War II. His name was Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl goes on to write a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And, and in this book, he's reflecting on what he experienced in the death camps. And he has this realization. He realizes that, well, I saw some people in those camps. And, and they actually stayed strong and they stayed humane to other human beings. But then I saw other people who actually uh, either just gave up and kind of withered away, or they even collaborated with the Nazis so that they could survive. And he, he came to the conclusion that the difference between the two had to do with what they found meaning in in life. So he found out that, that those who had meaning in their things like career or, or family or whatever, when the death camp took those things away, they withered and crumbled. They lost hope. They died. But for those who found meaning in something transcendent, who had like a faith in God or something that was beyond this world, they were those who had a courage that enabled them to endure, that enabled them to show kindness to people around them. And so his conclusion then was that in order to be able to make it through suffering, there has to be some kind of transcendent meaning, like some kind of faith or belief in God that gets you through it. But in the secular worldview that our culture holds to, there's no transcendent meaning. Which means that suffering can only come as just a terrible, horrible interruption that, that, that thwarts the pursuit of happiness. There's no place for it. There's no hope in joy. There's no hope. There's no joy in, in that kind of suffering. So that's one answer to the question, that there is no relationship between good news and suffering. Uh, let me give you one other way that that question has been answered. So uh, to, to this question, what does suffering have to do with the good news? Uh, another approach is the approach of the prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel says, it says this, it says, if you believe the good news, therefore God is going to bless your life. You know, he'll bless you with a nicer car, he'll bless you with a really nice boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, he'll bless you with a, a really big house, um, you know, he'll bless you with some really nice shoes so you can end up on preachers and sneakers with that Instagram pages. And uh, now here's the thing, here's the thing. Most of the forms of the prosperity gospel that maybe you've heard of are really easy to make fun of because basically it's just snake oil. You know, it's like, in order to be blessed, you have to put yourself in the posture of blessing. And the way that you do that is by sowing into this ministry. Like if you give a thousand of your dollars to this big megachurch pastor, well then this megachurch, you know, then God's going to bless you tenfold. But, 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 but here's the thing. I, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, you know, poke at anybody. But there's a little bit of prosperity gospel in every single one of us. You know, it's not just the people that you can make fun of on YouTube and Instagram. There's a little bit of prosperity gospel in each one of us. And what I mean by that is this. There's this inner monologue that says, if I just obey all the rules, if I just pray and read the Bible enough, if I just, am like a, if I'm a perfect Christian, then God will bless me. Then God will like me more and he'll give me stuff. And then God won't let me suffer. Now what that means is that the way the prosperity gospel answers our question, what does suffering have to do with the good news, is that again, it doesn't. It's the exact same answer as the secular answer. Suffering can have nothing to do with the good news because if you really believed enough, if you really were doing enough, if you really were Christian enough, that you wouldn't be suffering. Now, do you see why this is so abominable? This is abominable and damaging because what happens when you actually do suffer? There are at least two things that can result, and both of them are beliefs. Belief number one that can come out of this is, I must be bad. 
The reason I'm suffering is, well, I must have sinned. Or, you know, the, the reason God didn't heal me, the reason God didn't answer my prayers, it must have been because I'm a terrible Christian. Or, you know, I must not be doing it right. Or, or God you know, d- doesn't love me. Now, look, in this, I'm, I'm not trying to deny, of course, the, the, the Christian doctrine of sin. Like, the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that in a sense, all of us are guilty. But guilt and shame are two different things. Guilt says, I didn't act in love. And shame says, I'm unlovable. And the risk is that if the prosperity view is true, then the reason suffering happens is because you, is because you're ultimately not lovable by God. And that leads to a core belief of shame. That's, that's consequence number one, is that belief. But consequence number two is also a belief. It's the belief that God is bad. Not just that I'm bad, but that God's bad. If you fail at following God, then he'll abandon you. you know, he'll, he'll make you suffer. He won't bless you. He'll leave you out to dry. That, that God is like this stingy God who's just waiting there with a big old stick to thwack you with suffering every time you step out of line. Those are two ways this question has been answered. And they're both wrong. Praise God they're both wrong. What I want to show you here is the answer that Peter gives in this passage. The answer that Peter gives in this passage is that there actually is a relationship between the good news and suffering. The answer that he gives is that, as a matter of fact, God invites us to suffer, not in order to to, to punish us, not in order that we just live miserable lives. God invites us to suffer in order that we might experience abundant life. And there, the, the way that he gives you that answer, I've kind of spoiled the, you know, the, the main point here. <laughs> but let me show you that the, the way he gives that answer is through giving three profound reasons in this passage why God actually invites us to embrace suffering when it comes. And I want to I break down this passage by looking at each of them. So let, let me just look at this first one here. And, and to look at this, uh, you, you can just check out verse, verse 5 here. Uh, let me read verse 5. Here's how one translation puts it. Through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation. So now notice here the role that faith plays. It says that faith is the, is the instrument or the means by which God is protecting you. Like that's the, the thing that connects you to God. So hold that thought in your head and now go down one more verse and look at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 says... In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So there are two uses of the word faith in this passage. And, and what's really almost scary at first glance is that in verse 5, faith is the thing that connects you to God. But in verse 7, faith is the very thing that's tested by God in suffering. And sometimes, when you're going through suffering, I mean, does it not seem as though, man, I don't know if my faith is going to be able to bear this. You know, I don't know that I'm going to be able to actually hold on to that faith. Like, my faith feels like it's about to snap. You know, for example, I remember um, when I went to grad school, and, and I was supposed to study the Bible, but I was studying the Bible in this really like, liberal place with a whole bunch of people who didn't really hold uh, that the Bible was even the Word of God. And I went into that just thinking to myself, I don't know how I'm going to be able to get through this 
And, and I had the genuine fear that I don't know that I'm smart enough to actually hold on to my faith through this trial, through, you know, kind of an intellectual trial. And this, this is sometimes the effect that suffering can have. The, the narrative can often be like, God didn't show up in my suffering. He either must not be real or he must not be good. And the result can sometimes be that, that in that, that your faith gets abandoned. I, I mean, you've known people who have actually had that kind of response to suffering. I, I, I certainly have. But if that's the way that God intends for, for, for trials to work, for suffering to work, then suffering almost kind of becomes like a test that God wants us to fail. Is that really the point of suffering? And, and, and in this passage, the answer that Peter gives to that is a profound no. Because if you go back and you look at verses 6 and 7 again, notice that there's actually a so that in these verses. It, you know, so that indicates purpose. Like he's actually saying that there's, there's a reason for this. First of all, he, he says this. He says that you can be a Christian and suffer trials. But then it says there's a purpose in those trials. They have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. Now, by the way, this, this uh, is not something that is proven to God. Like God, of course, knows exactly the, the, the true nature of our hearts. It's not as though God takes suffering so that like, we can prove our faith to him. He already knows that. The person who doesn't know it is you. The, the amazing thing about walking through a trial is that you might actually walk away from that, walk out the other side of that, and realize, like, oh my gosh, I didn't actually realize that like, God had grabbed me this deep. I didn't actually realize that, that God had allowed there to be such a faith, such a love for him in my life. Sometimes only suffering can bring that out. And so what, what you can actually conclude from that is that far from being meant to weaken our faith, the first reason that God invites us to suffer with him is actually for the strengthening of our faith. The strengthening of our faith. And you might, have think, you might think to yourself, like, man, you know, if, if ever there was anyone who, who this would have been obvious to, it would have been Peter himself. And you might look at Peter and think, well, you know, here's a guy who surely has strong faith. I mean, he's up there preaching boldly on the day of Pentecost, like he goes on to be a martyr for his faith. But I think Peter's actually writing this out of a very deeply personal experience in his own life. Because if you remember the life of Peter, there's actually a moment in Peter's life where his faith is brought to the breaking point. Do you remember this? When, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, even if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you, Jesus. I will be willing to go all the way to the death. And of course, what really happens is, Peter denies Jesus, and he denies him not just once, not just twice, but three times. And by the way, he denies him in this way when he's standing by a fire, if you remember the story. He's warming his hands by a fire outside the place where Jesus is on trial. No accident, I think, he actually compares suffering to a fiery furnace in this chapter, because Peter had been through that very trial himself. He denied his Lord three times. He utterly blows it. And if you're Peter, I mean, just imagine what kind of tormenting voices you would have had going on in your head for those terrible hours in between Friday and Sunday. I mean, he's, his inner monologue is probably, I'm a liar. I'm a traitor. I've let down my Lord. I'm not worthy to ever be known by the name of Jesus ever again. I don't deserve to be a follower of Jesus. 
And this kind of trial that Peter is going through is the very worst kind of trial because it wasn't Peter's health, it wasn't Peter's wealth, it wasn't any of those things that was wounded. It was Peter's pride. I mean, if you've ever gone through a trial like that, then those are the bitterest, most difficult of all because there's nothing that we as human beings hold to so dearly as our own pride. And in, that, in, in the trial that Peter went through, he could no longer hold on to his courage, he could no longer hold on to his boldness, he never hold on to, he no longer hold on to his devotion. I mean, he clearly didn't have enough devotion because he abandons his Lord. But Peter had something that he perhaps wasn't even aware of. Because shortly before going to the cross, in the very scene when Peter promises that he'll follow Jesus even to death, Jesus says to him, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. Jesus had prayed for Peter. When Peter denied Jesus that day, he came to the utter end of himself. And, and Peter thought that, that his faith had snapped. He thought that there was no longer any way for him to have any kind of relationship with God. But he realized when his faith had snapped that even though he no longer had the faith to hold on to Jesus, that Jesus had prayed for him and he was holding on to Peter. There's someone who said once that the Christian life is a little bit like this. On the one hand, you can try to look into your own heart for a ground of confidence, but that's like casting an anchor into the hold of a ship. You know, if you imagine a big ship, there's a big storm, and you take the anchor, and you just like throw it inside the hold of the ship. You know, what's going to happen? The ship's going to just you know, get rocked back and forth. It's going to capsize. It's going to have waves flooding over it. But if you take the anchor and you cast it outside of the ship... And it goes all the way down to the ocean floor and it grabs a hold of the rock. That's a ship that will be held fast. And the rock to us is Jesus. He is the manifestation of God's infinite love for people like you and me. And Jesus knew what was in Peter's heart. You know, he knew that Peter was going to get scared before Peter even knew it himself. But he looked into Peter's cowardly heart and he didn't reject him. He didn't deny him. Instead, Jesus prays for him. And he holds on to Peter even when Peter can no longer hold on to him. And so what happens to Peter? What happened to Peter is the most profound transformation that had ever happened in his whole life. Because it was only when he came to the end of himself through suffering that he was able to emerge as a man not with self-confidence, but with God-confidence. And that is the Peter that you see preaching boldly in the book of Acts. That's the Peter that you see being willing to be crucified upside down for, for Jesus' sake. And all of this because God had used trials to bring Peter to the end of himself. This is why Peter had such a strong faith. It was because he had suffered. And so what that means is that in the lesson that Peter is wanting to share in this chapter that comes out of his own personal experience is that suffering is, is not... God's way. God doesn't intend for suffering to be something that weakens our faith. It's actually meant to strengthen it. And just imagine if you saw it that way. Like imagine if, if, if instead of seeing suffering as like a sign of God being angry at you, a sign of God rejecting you, a sign of God being distant, if instead it were actually God's invitation to know him and to grow in him. That's the first reason that, that, that's given in this passage, that suffering is actually one of the ways that God can strengthen our faith. It's reason number one. Reason number two. Now this one's found here in verse eight. 
Uh, look at verse 8 where it says, uh, though you have not seen him, this is the verse that Zeke was talking about, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now this is a profound verse. And the reason it's a profound verse is that, you know, if you think about this, this is, this is a verse that's written to people who are suffering. I mean, right before in the verses, verses 6 and 7, that's what Peter said. Like, he says, you're suffering in trials of many kinds. And the reason they're suffering is because of their faith. You go on and read in the rest of the book. It's because of them following Jesus that they're experiencing the ostracism and the rejection and all the other things that they're going through. And yet, in the very next verse, Peter says that they're in love with the very God who's leading them into all of that. He's saying, like, you're suffering because of Jesus. And you're head over heels in love with Jesus. Now, now let me ask you a question. Like, if it really is true that these guys are, are going through suffering because of Jesus, and yet Peter can also say, you know, you're filled by Jesus with this inexpressible and glorious joy, who is it that looks good in that scenario? Who is it that looks good in that scenario? The answer is that God looks really good in that scenario. I mean, imagine for a minute, like, you know, fast forward here, and imagine that uh, you're now sitting in the Roman Colosseum, you're like a, a pagan spectator, and you're watching as a whole bunch of Christians are marched out to be fed to the lions. And you're looking at these guys, you're thinking, who on earth are these guys? I mean, they're about to die in the most brutal way possible, and they're out there singing. I mean, they're out there rejoicing and celebrating and singing hymns to their God. I mean... Who are these people? And more importantly, you'd be asking yourself, what kind of God do they serve? I mean, you must be thinking, their God must be the most amazing, joy-giving, life-giving God that, that, that there could ever be. You know, if you're a pagan, you would worship idols. A God that can't see, a God that can't hear, a God that can't speak. And yet here are these Christians going off to their death and they are worshiping a living God. God's goodness can be seen when he's praised in prosperity. But there is nothing more radiant than God being praised in suffering. And this is why the second reason that God invites us to suffer with him is to magnify the goodness of God. It's to magnify the goodness of God. And if you want an example of this in the Bible, just look at the book of Job. You know, the, the first Peter is a little bit like the Job of the New Testament. Um, and, and the supreme question of the book of Job, if you know this book, the supreme question of the book of Job is, does Job love God because of God's blessings or because of who God is in himself? Does Job love God because of God's blessings or because of who God is in himself? And at the beginning of the book, Satan comes into God's presence and he says that the, reason Job, that the reason that Job loves you, God, is because you've given him all this stuff. Look at all this stuff you've given him. You've given him fields and family and cattle and sheep and donkeys and all these things. Of course he loves you. I mean, anyone who gives you all this stuff would love you. But what would happen if we took it all away? If we took it all away, says Satan, surely Job would curse you to your face. And so with, even though Job doesn't actually realize the whole kind of cosmic drama that's going, behind the scene, going on behind the scenes, Satan is given permission to take those things away from Job, and he does. And Job loses everything. And yet, as you go through the book, 
Job holds on to his faith in God. I mean, he complains a ton. Like, if you read through the book of Job, like, he's constantly, like, complaining and asking and crying out to God, like, God, why is this happening to me? But the one thing that Job never does is he never denies his faith in God. He never turns his face away from God. Every single complaint he takes before the very presence of God and says, and says, God, even though I don't understand you, even though I don't know why I'm suffering, even though I don't understand any of this, still I will go to you. Still I will trust you. Which is why at the end of the book, Satan loses the bet. The Satan's bet was that Job is going to curse God once God's blessings are taken away so that God would look worthless. But instead, Job continues to hold on to his faith. And as a result, it makes God look priceless. And this, by the way, this is why the prosperity gospel just doesn't work. Because what the prosperity gospel tries to do is it tries to say that the value of knowing God is not to be found in God himself, but it's in God's stuff. You know, like if you just like worship God, then he'll give you all of these things. Well, you're not actually worshiping God. You're just worshiping God's things. But man, you know, here is what beautiful worship looks like. Beautiful worship looks like when, when there is nothing, when there are no blessings. As it says in Habakkuk, when there is no sheep in the stall and there is no fruit on the vine. But when still you can say, even then I will praise God. Or like when your house burns down and you stand outside your house and you say, God, you're all I have. I still love you. You will get me through this. You will carry me through this. You are adequate. You are enough. That kind of worship makes God look extraordinary. God allows us to walk through suffering, Peter says, because in that, God's goodness is magnified. And if you want to be a witness to a, to a world that needs to know the goodness of God, then do you not realize that sometimes trials are one of the best ways that that can happen? It's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the very comfort that I'm sharing with you is comfort that I received from God when I was suffering. So that's reason number two. And then finally, one last one. Uh, the first reason uh, is that God allows us, um, invites us to know sufferings in order to strengthen our faith. The second reason is to magnify the goodness of God. Uh, but then there's one final reason in this passage, and, and I think it's probably the most important one of all. Uh, the last reason is in order to experience God's heart. It's in order to experience God's heart. Um, and for this, look at verse 9. In verse 9 it says, um, that you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now again, the context of this is suffering. And yet in that, Peter is saying that you're actually receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls? I mean, what kind of salvation then could this possibly be? <laughs> And if, it is, if it's the case that, that salvation just means no more than stuff, you know, if salvation just means a bunch of stuff, a bunch of pleasure, then what Peter is saying actually makes no sense. But what if salvation actually means what Jesus said it meant? In the book of John, John 17, verse 3, Jesus actually gives you a definition of what eternal life is. And here's what he says. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what that's saying is, 
that eternal life, salvation, can mean no less and even no more than knowing Jesus. It's being able to say like Paul was able to say, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus for whose sake I have lost all things. Or Psalm 73, <laughs> whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may feel, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I mean, if that's what salvation amounts to, if salvation amounts to relationship with Jesus, then suffering is not incompatible with that. And the reason why is because according to this book, if you look at verse 11, <laughs> Jesus himself suffered. Jesus himself suffered, which means that if you want to know Jesus, you cannot do that apart from suffering. You cannot know Jesus apart from knowing suffering. And, you know, I, years ago I took a, a class in college was about the history of missions. You're going to look at some people who got to know Jesus really well through suffering. Just look at people who uh, went out on the mission field. Uh, many, many stories of that. Let me, just, let me just share one of those with you. This is a story about a guy who was a missionary pilot, um, whose job it was was to take supplies to different mission stations in remote parts of the Amazon jungle. And one day, a few days before Christmas, this guy um, had been asked to make an emergency delivery of medical supplies to this little remote village. And so he's on his um, he's on his plane, which is like a little pontoon plane. So he's able to um, land on this on this on this little body of water. He sets up his shelter for the night. And he's planning to fly out the next day so that he can be with his family for Christmas. But night comes, and then the rain starts to come. And, and all of a sudden, he realizes there's no way I'm going to be able to make my journey back home. I'm stuck here. And, and so he, he's stuck in the jungle, and all of a sudden, like these deep, deep waves of self-pity come over him. And uh, let me just share with you in his own words how it was that God met him. So uh, he says that it was Christmas Eve, and night was descending on the jungle. There was no way I could get back home. Back in Pennsylvania, my folks would have returned from church, and mother would be getting the turkey ready. Outside, the snow would be falling. In the place where my family lives on the mission station, six hours away, Nancy and the boys would be sitting at home alone. They knew by now, because I'd been able to radio back, that I was stuck in the jungle. I would not be with them for Christmas. And then all of a sudden, he begins to talk to God. He says, oh God. I'm in the wrong place. What am I doing? But that night, he says, as he's under his mosquito net, he says that, 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 that God kind of met him. God visited him. And it wasn't as though he said that there were shepherds. You know, there wasn't as though that, that, that there were any of the angels like there were in the actual Christmas story. But as he lay there that night in his hammock, desperately homesick, he said that he felt God said this to him. He said, my son, this is what Christmas is all about. Jesus left heaven on Christmas, and he woke up in the wrong place, a stable in Bethlehem. Christmas means leaving home, not going home. My only begotten son did not come home for Christmas. He left his home to be with you. Suffering is very often the, the way to truly taste the heart of God for you. And we can never, ever, ever ever come anywhere close to knowing what Jesus suffered for us. But in his grace, he actually allows us 
to be made like him, even getting to taste a little bit of that, so that we might know how profoundly, deeply his, his heart longs for each of us. That he was willing to suffer so much to even go all the way to the cross and to pay an infinite cost so that he might have a relationship with us. So those are three reasons that this passage gives for why, seen in, in, in one sense, suffering is actually a way that God uses um, to show us who he really is. I'm not saying in this that suffering is ever a means uh, to, a, to in and of itself. Uh, when God sees suffering, he says it's wrong. He says it's, it's bad. He says this is not how I meant for things to be. But the amazing story of the gospel is that it doesn't matter what kind of suffering it is. It doesn't matter what kind of suffering you might be going through right now. God can take even the worst possible suffering. He can redeem it, and he can use it for the most extraordinary, unbelievable purposes. So as I close, I just want to make a couple of really quick applications, okay? Uh, You know, it could be here that, it could be that there are people who are right here, right now, in the throes of, of deep, deep suffering. You know, I don't know uh, about how that might be for everyone, but I want to say that the message of First Peter tonight is that God has not abandoned you, and that even when you feel like you can't hold on to Him, He is faithful to hold on to you. And in fact, the message of First Peter goes even further. It says that, that it's possible to, to, to see the, the place that you're in right now, and to turn that into an invitation from God to experience his heart. In the book of Psalms, there's a, there's a line in there where it says that he who goes out to sow um, weeping will return with joy carrying sheaves with him. And what that means is that, that, that suffering is never meaningless in the Christian life. That because God is a redeeming God, you can actually take your tears and you can sow your tears so that out of them will come an amazing harvest one day of joy. So I just want to offer that to you. And then second of all, especially for those of you right now who may say that, you know, really I'm not suffering very much at all in this season that I'm in, I want to leave you with a challenge. And the challenge I want to leave you with is to reconsider how you think of, of your life. I mean, it's really as big as that. The reason I say this is that our culture says that the good life is a life that avoids suffering at all costs. That's a life where you're in control of your circumstances so that you can do whatever it takes to wall yourself off from ever having to suffer. Now, I just want to tell you that's not going to work. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much security you have. Like, suffering has has a way of getting past all of those barriers. But the point is, is that that is not the good life. That is not the good life. The reason that the subtitle of this series is The Good Life is that Christianity says... The, the good life is knowing Jesus. And if that is really your number one priority, then that will seriously change the way that you think about suffering. If the definition of the good life is to follow Jesus, then you will suffer. There is a cost that has to be counted if you really, truly want to know Jesus for all he's worth. Yeah. Are you willing to pay that cost? Are you willing to reorient your life so that your top priority is not your own comfort? But it's truly knowing him. You know, uh, there's a guy who has spoken here at Thrive before. He's a missionary. He's not in my church. And has worked in the jungles of the Amazon basin for about 20 years. And one time when he was back, 
took me out to lunch. And, and man, you know, you could just look at, look at like, even the, 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 the effects of living in the jungle that that's even had on his physical appearance. And you could just tell, like, here's a guy who has followed Jesus in a pretty diehard way. I mean, you could see the marks on his body. And I remember he looked at me across the table. And, and I'm pretty sure these were the exact words he said. He just said with a conviction and a passion in his voice, he said, God is and I long for you to know that like I know it. I long for you to know that like I know it. And I just want to leave you with that message. Like, God is awesome. And if you're willing to actually say, you know what? I'm not going to make an idol out of comfort anymore. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to be open to counting the cost and open to suffering so that I might truly know Jesus. Then, oh my gosh. <laughs> That is a life worth living. That is the good life. So, that's all I've got. I'm going to hand it over to, uh, I guess, this is Amanda. And we're going to this morning.